Welcome to the Runner's World Show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief. This week, we take one of our staffers who has minimal, and I do mean minimal, knowledge about running shoes down the street to our local running store to get properly fit for a new pair of running shoes. And we round up this week's news in the kick, including Olympian Nick Simmons once again selling his body to support himself as a professional runner. But first, a conversation with John Young and Julie Windsor, two of the first little people to finish the Boston Marathon. Thanks for joining us. But if you were to know yourself, don't have to worry about nothing else. So I run. Back in 2013, writer-at-large Charlie Butler was at the finish line of the Boston Marathon waiting for the runners he was there to profile to finish the race and make history. Julie Windsor, then aged 26, and John Young, then 47, were on track to be the very first little people ever to finish the Boston Marathon. Julie is 3 feet 9 inches tall, and John is 4 feet 4 inches tall. But they were stopped at mile 25.4 just after the bombs went off on Boylston Street. Fifteen days later, the pair came back to run that last eight-tenths of a mile and cross the finish line, although in both of their minds, there was much that was left unfinished. Charlie's story about Julie and John appeared in the April 2014 issue of the magazine. It was called Big, and that same month, the pair went back to Boston again. Unfortunately, John had the flu and had to drop out at mile 10, but Julie finished in four hours and 43 minutes, and became the very first little person to complete this historic event. And I happened to be on the lead press truck in front of the women's elite pack that day. And Julie, because she started in the mobility impaired division and started the race first before it, any, anyone else did, she was actually leading the Boston Marathon for 10 miles until the wheelchair athletes caught her. And right around mile 13, the women's elite pack caught up to Julie. And there was this incredible moment where she looked over at Shalane Flanagan and Rita Jeptu and the other leaders, and they looked over at her. They locked eyes. They raised their fists to each other and sort of saluted each other in a way. It was one of the coolest moments I've ever witnessed in this sport. I tried to take a picture of it on my phone, but it just happened so quickly, but it is seared in my memory. John, however, finally got his finish in 2015 when he ran a 6.35 despite the nasty weather. He ran again this past year, finishing in 6 hours and 19 minutes. Recently, Charlie sat down with John and Julie to talk about what has happened in their life since the story appeared in the magazine and also to hear what they're looking to accomplish this year. John and Julie, for people who may not be familiar with the condition of dwarfism or the physical explanation of it. Could you both describe or explain what type of dwarfism you have and how it affects you as as a runner? So dwarfism as a whole, there's um, quite a variation. There's over 200 different types of dwarfism. And um, in summary, it's a bone disorder where the bones do not grow at a normal rate. And um, there's often abnormalities of the joints and the spine Um, so there's a a wide variety of different forms. Um, I have a rare form of dwarfism called acromesomillic dysplasia, um, and it's 
caused by a recessive gene that both of my parents carried, and I inherited both recessive genes. Um, for me, it is a condition that it affects my um, entire body in proportion, but also um, is more significant in my arms and my hands. Um, so I'm three foot nine, and um, that's as tall as I will get. Uh, I have achondroplasia, which is the most common type of um, profound short stature. Uh, I have an average size torso and then short arms and legs. Um, and along with mine is um, uh, uh, affects the spine down at the bottom where I have a narrowing of my spinal column. And it, I have the same spinal cord mass kind of shoved into a smaller area. And so often it results in stenosis and and pain and numbness that kind of shoots out into your limbs and and whatnot. But I've been I've been very lucky in the fact that um, I've not had a single surgery at all during my life related to my dwarfism. But when I was very young, you know, um, I was a pretty active kid. And I think as as the medical profession started to know things and find out things, they started suggesting that people with dwarfism be physically active, but running was something that they never encouraged. And so, you know, I, I never really found myself interested in running at all, but, but it was always a swimmer and a cyclist. With the medical professionals suggesting you not run, what have they learned or what have you learned since you've taken up running, both of you, and, and completed one of the most amazing races of all, the Boston Marathon? Well, with, with me, I, I find it kind of funny because I'll go to regional meetings for the Little People of America and oftentimes they'll have parent groups and the doctors will be talking to the parents and the parents will say, you know, my son is really active. What kind of things can I have him do? And a few years ago, you, you know, they would say, well, get him into swimming, get him into cycling, but we really don't, don't recommend running because it's probably not good for his back. And I immediately kind of quietly put up my hand in the back and I say, well, does that include marathon running? And they'll look at me and say, well, of course. And I, well, I've done a couple of marathons and I pretty much run three or four times a week. So I, I, I don't really kind of follow that. Obviously, if you have some pain and discomfort, you, you should stop and not do it. But I, I don't at all adhere to the idea that you just blanketly say don't run. And I, I think as Julie and myself and, and other uh, little people runners, there's Yen Trang and Lauren Humphreys are all getting into long distance running. I think they're starting to realize that that statement probably isn't something that people should generally follow. And obviously, obviously be wise and, and, and careful with what you do. Uh, but that, that statement itself I don't think is, is uh, valid anymore. When I was doing the story, there were a number of people that you led me to who were either little people or parents of little people who um, caught on to your story. I know there was one fellow down in North Carolina who was actually following you, John, by GPS. And, Julie, you had a number of people who came out to the course to cheer you on. When you think about those people who were affected by you, what does that make you feel in the sense of, are you trailblazers? Are you runners who just happen to have a good story? Who are you? I I hope to be a role model um, to especially the next generation of, of little people, you know, growing up now in this day and age. And I've always wanted to be a leader in some sense. And so especially when you talk about your own passion and your own dreams, that's running for me. And so I really am encouraged to hear that other people are inspired by my story and that, you know, I've had parents reach out to me saying that 
they, when they first received the diagnosis of their child, they weren't sure what to expect. They weren't sure how to encourage their child as far as whether to to limit them or to push them harder. And, you know, I, I love being able to have those conversations and look at them and say, challenge your kids, find out what they love, find out what they want to do and push them for it. You know, there's, you should have high expectations for your child, regardless of, um, of their physical abilities. I really think that Julie and I are, are, we're similar in the fact that we're both runners, but I, I think our stories really kind of parallel in a way where, you know, Julie's much younger than I am and, and she's been a runner her entire life and had these great dreams. And, and I, I love the fact that her parents never kind of, you know, led her to believe that those are things that she shouldn't do. And, and that's amazing. Where with me, I've never been a runner until now. And it was a change in my life that I basically kind of embraced. And when I first did it, it wasn't at all because I wanted, you know, other people to kind of see what I was doing. It was for my own personal health. And I think that's the message that I, I really hope rubs off on other people, be short statured or not, that it's never too late to kind of change your life and decide that, hey, I want to do something different. John, part of your story was in getting to running, as you mentioned, health reasons. I think at one point you said you were you weighed about 190 pounds on a four-foot, three-inch frame that should be more accustomed to 130 pounds. You've managed to keep off the weight. How do you do it and why do you do it? Well, my wife basically encouraged me to get to the doctor. And, and when I went to the doctor and, and was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea, uh, and was prescribed a CPAP machine and started to kind of get proper sleep. I got back into swimming and, and then, you know, somebody at school said, Hey, let's, it's earth day. Let's ride our bikes to school. And so I started riding a bike and, and then the idea of a triathlon kind of, you know, entered into my, uh, my mind. And, and, and I guess now I just, part of me doesn't want to slow down because I worry if I stop all that weight's going to come back again. And, you know, I, I turned 50 a month ago and I don't, really want to slow down. I, you know, I, I, I hope to keep doing this as long as I can. And I think my age is probably going to be the thing that limits me before my short stature is. Julie, you've slowed down in your running, but for different reasons. Yeah. So, um, I just had my first baby back in September. Um, and he has changed our world for the better. He is just such a delight. Um, so following the 2014 marathon, I, we knew that we wanted to start a family. And so I started kind of scaling back on my miles and uh, trying to take good care of myself. And Charlie has now entered the picture. <laughs> One of the first things that I made sure I put on my registry when I knew I was pregnant was a jogging stroller. So <laughs> I, I shopped around and tried to find a, um, a jogger stroller that fit me well because most of them are so big and bulky. Um, and I couldn't see over them. So fortunately, I was able to find one that I could see over well. And um, Charlie and I go out on runs at least twice a week, sometimes three. And um, I can't wait to show him the joys of running. Julie, last year, a documentary came out about you. Yeah, so I, I was really honored to um, be my to, for my story to be highlighted in this documentary called Undaunted Chasing History at the Boston Marathon. Um, it was filmed by um, a Boston Globe reporter who had actually started following me during the 2013 marathon. Um, he was putting together a, a short film for a class that he was making at the time um, on making films, and he was there at the finish line waiting for me to come in to finish when the bombs went off. Um, that year for his class, that's how his short film ended, but he felt like there was... 
a lot of missing pieces there and, and wanted to continue the film and continue the story to bring some resolution and to, to show a story of redemption. And so that's what Undaunted is. Undaunted is a story about redemption, about coming back to the starting line and finishing what you um, went out to complete. Uh, I had quite an incredible response following that um, throughout the world. John, I remember when I was originally interviewing you and your wife, Sue, Sue said she predicted at some point you were going to appear on a cover of a athletic magazine. Has it worked out yet? Well, I haven't been on the cover, but um, Sports Illustrated did a little blurb on me during the summer as well as the triathlete magazine. They've picked up on the, the fact that uh, I'm kind of still pursuing triathlon and, and training and, and, and racing. And I've now actually signed up and I'm going to attempt to, to do an Ironman triathlon in October in Maryland. How many little people have done Ironmans? Well, none. Um, I know I've done seven half Ironmans, uh, but I, as far as I know, I'll be the first person to do a full Ironman. And a full Ironman is a, a 2.4-mile swim, open water swim, a 112-mile bike ride, and then a full marathon, 26.2 run. Do you have to get it into that 17-hour time limit? Yep, you're supposed to finish within 17 hours, and my fastest half Ironman is a little under eight hours. So if you double that, that's 16, and so I have an hour to work with. But I think you know some solid training this summer is going to hopefully bring that down even a little bit lower. Julie, you're not doing an a Ironman coming up, but you are uh, busy with being a mother. I, I just keep saying I feel like this is the best chapter of my life so far, um, being a mom and just thoroughly enjoying it. Um, so right now I've, I've scaled back my hours a little bit at work. I still work as a PA in pediatrics. Um, we don't know yet if he has dwarfism. It's a little bit too early to know, but whether he does or not, we're going to have high expectations of our kids. So that won't change. Both of you, when you were growing up, you'd, you'd hear stories or you, you, you were harassed or you heard the cat calls because of your size. I'm wondering now that you're both established big shots in a sense in this in the in the sport of running, do you hear the cat calls and does it affect you like it once did? I, I certainly don't as much as I used to, especially when I'm running around where I live. Um, I get more encouraging, you know, people beeping their horn or rolling down the window and yelling "Way to go!" and uh, and it's 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 nice, you know. Obviously, I I live in a area there north of Boston on the North Shore in Salem. And, and so when I run around there, it, it, it doesn't happen nearly as much anymore. Um, but I, I, I used to kind of get upset and, and I used to kind of, it used to kind of fuel me to, to run harder and longer. And, and I kind of liked that. But I, I actually have come to a point just a little while ago where I, I honestly just ignore it and shake my head and I just keep going. And I think more people know about us now and, and, and kind of recognize what we're doing. When I go out training on the marathon course, a lot of friendly faces, a lot of people have read your story and, and know about us. And, uh, and, and it, it's, it's great to kind of be out there in a real positive way. Julie, you know, you had a situation when you were um, training and one of the administrators of the school suggested you were not right for this job and essentially they said you know you should leave school what does it mean for you now as a mother of charlie an infant do you think the world is have you helped change the world with what you've done so in undergrad i was pursuing a career in nursing initially um and very early on in the program, um, it became obvious to me that they were not willing to work with me. And um, they basically forced me to withdraw from the program um, with the threat of failure if I didn't. Um, And so 
I then stopped being a nurse or I stopped that career path and instead switched over to pursue a career as a physician assistant and went on to grad school and um, now I am a physician assistant and absolutely love that career. Um, I think that, you know, I've always aimed to try and, and put myself out there in a positive light um, to try and change perceptions and, and general assumptions about what what we can and can't do. And, and I feel like that has been accomplished and that some perceptions have been changed for the better. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely encouraged by that. And I think that overall, people now perceive me and hopefully the future generations um, in a more positive light. You, you know, one of the things that, that people have talked about is how Julie and I kind of inspire other people. And I think what's important to notice is is there are times when I, I know I myself need inspiration. And I think what's meant a lot to me is there have been a number of parents of people with short stature that have kind of reached out and 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 I've asked them for some help and assistance. And you know, I can think back to one young child who um, who was born just a few days before the 2013 marathon, and her mother knew ahead of time that she was going to have dwarfism, and she kind of reached out to Facebook to some of the groups and said, "I'm going to have this daughter that has achondroplasia. What am I going to, you know, what should I expect? What's her life going to be like?" And so I touched base with her mom right away, and then the the tragedy of the bombing happened, but we remained in in touch, and her daughter's going to be turning three this year. And um, her mom sent me um, a little picture of Vivian that I wear on a tag that sits on the back of my race belt. And all it says is got a picture of Vivian's face and it says, just keep running. So whenever I'm kind of a little bit sore or or my run's not going really well and I start to think, well, maybe I should cut it short, I can feel that little picture of her tapping me in the back and it kind of keeps me going and it's just meant the world to me that that parents have kind of reached out to to help me just as much as you know hopefully we help them you can hear charlie's full interview with julie and john at runnersworld.com slash audio and recently as part of our 50th anniversary we republished charlie's story big online as part of our year-long runners world select series you can find it at runnersworld.com slash selects You might think that the people who work here at Runner's World know a fair bit about running shoes. And you would be, well, half right. Sure, some of us, like shoes and gear editor Jeff Dengate, can go on for hours about foam densities and mesh uppers. But lots of us start working here knowing little more than our shoe size. And even that is debatable. So one rainy day last week, Jeff took one of our newest colleagues, Christopher Michael, to our local running store to find out why specialty retail stores really do have an edge when it comes to helping runners find the right shoe for them. I like red and black shoes. Usually, uh, you know, if it's comfortable, I wear it. That's our new online editor, Christopher Michael. He's been a runner for five years, and he's finished two marathons. So maybe you're thinking, that's pretty good. The guy should know a thing or two about shoes. But, well... I really... (laughs) Don't uh, I have no idea whether I've been wearing uh, shoes that help me overpronate or underpronate or any idea. Which is why we brought him to the Emmaus Run Inn to meet this guy. My name is Chris Schmidt, and I've been selling shoes for about 35 years. Chris Schmidt is the owner of our local running store here in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, not to be confused with Christopher, our guy who likes red and black shoes. 
I brought Christopher to the store because he's like a lot of runners. He's never been properly fitted for a pair of shoes, and he pretty much always opts to buy them online or worse. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he's also like a lot of people because he never felt comfortable walking into a specialty retail store. He was a little intimidated. Howdy, how are you today? Good, how are you? I'm all right. What can we do for you today? I guess I'm in the market for some shoes. I'm looking forward to learning more about it. I'm Christopher. And I'm Christopher as well. Nice so to meet we you. forget those two names are in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Chris starts by asking Christopher a bunch of questions, like how many miles a week he runs, 25, if he's had any injuries, no, he hasn't, and if he's training for anything, yes, a relay race. Well, let's go to the back and uh, right. we'll take a look at your feet. We'll measure your feet and go from there. So what marathons did you do? Um, my first marathon was uh, in Hartford. Okay. Uh, I started running in 2011. You know, part of the the real allure for me at that point was that it was cheap. Mm-hmm. So I was running in a pair of um, Payless shoes. Okay. You know, right. regular old gym socks, mm-hmm. uh, swim trunks, okay. cotton shirt. Nice. Right. And uh, made it all the way up to the marathon day. And uh, the race was in Hartford. I was living in New York at the time uh, that the night before. Grabbed all my stuff, um, hopped on the subway to take the train up, and was sitting on the subway when I looked uh, down and realized that I'd forgotten my shoes. Oh, no. <laughs> so um, looked real quick on my phone and found that there was a, another Payless shoe right. store right above Penn Station. Right. Ran over, ran in, got the only pair of shoes that even looked like runner shoes. <laughs> In my size, right. uh, the next morning I uh, laced them up, put the first mile walking to the start, put the next twenty six point two running in them, and then threw them immediately in the trash because they just hurt so yeah. much. Oh, um, so that was the first, and then I realized at that point that I c- I probably should put more than twelve dollars into a pair of shoes. Sure, sure. This is a Runner's World employee, folks. It should be noted. I was shocked, but Chris, the store owner. He didn't even flinch. Okay. All right. So let's have you stand up first. Let me put your uh, right foot on the scale. All right. So this little piece over here measures your arch length. This measures your width, and this, of course, is your toes. That seems about right. I know that – well, I I buy nine and a half shoes. The revelations come fast. First, Christopher's been wearing the wrong size shoe. Uh, Generally speaking, running shoes – cut a little bit shorter. So now I'm probably going to start you with a, with a 10, and then we'll, but we'll go from there. Okay. But I'll go over the whole fit, and at the end of the day, whether it's a 9, a 10, 11, we'll make sure that everything's in, in the right spot. Okay. So Other things to take into account? Christopher has bunions on both feet, which really makes it hard to find a shoe that fits comfortably. Now comes the walk test. Not as much pressure as on a runway, but it's a little bit more awkward than just walking down the street. Well, Chris, what are you looking for as you're watching his motion? What I'm looking at there is I'm looking in posterior and anterior as he's walking, so I'm looking to see what his ankles are doing and what his arch is doing as he's getting away from me. So just seeing how much that maybe that heel to ankle is, is rolling in or out uh, and just looking how much flexibility is in the arch. So it helps me in understanding his foot type, so it helps me go to the wall and, and what type of shoe he's going to need. You know, obviously, he's not a neutral person because he's, he's pronating a little bit too much. He's also not an over-pronator where his foot was really close collapsing a whole lot and rolling in way too much. So he's kind of somewhere in between. Chris heads back to his stock room. He's looking for a pair of shoes that'll give Christopher the little bit of support that he needs to keep his foot from rolling inward. All right, Chris. All right. We got four different styles of shoes for you to try on. The first pair of shoes is the Saucony Guide 9. 
Chris explains things like how the shoe's midsole helps keep the foot from rolling inward. Think of that midsole like a guidance system. It guides your foot from heel to toe through your stride. He also tells Christopher that shoes typically last about 350 to 400 miles. If you push it too much past that, stuff starts to hurt. For Chris, he says that hurt comes in the form of back pain, but other people might experience it in their knees or their legs or just a general not-so-fresh feeling after your run. I usually switch when I start getting blisters. <laughs> All right, well, see if we can keep you get from getting blisters. Well, that's one way. So you want to go outside and take a spin? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Next, the run test. Christopher runs a few short laps up and down the sidewalk while Chris watches, and he's actually surprised by what he's seeing. So what'd you think? Uh... They feel a little loose in the heel, but otherwise okay. not comfortable. Too, not too bad. So watching you run is definitely different than when you were walking. Yeah. Based on watching Christopher walk, he expected him to be a heel striker. But Christopher lands on his toes, which means he might need a shoe with less drop. That's basically the difference between how far your heel and your toe sit from the road. Just to be sure, Chris has him try another one of those four styles that he brought out originally, a pair of Asics. Not nearly as squeaky, these ones. Same run. Here yep. we go. These are definitely softer in the front, all right? But they're tighter in the heel. <laughs> Again, I'm going to have you go one more time. Okay. So, Chris, how important is it to get somebody out and actually running, say, down the sidewalk like we are here, rather than on the treadmill or just walking back and forth in the store? For me, I, I still prefer my eyes and watching people run outside where it's going all day. In this case, there was quite a bit of difference between him walking and, and running. When he walks, he's more traditional, hitting that heel and kind of going. When he's running, he's definitely, I mean, his, his whole, really, your whole body kind of changed. He's, he's more upright, uh, and, he's, and he's got a, a much more bounce in his, in his step, and he's really not hitting his heel at all. See, the goal with going into a store is to meet the matchmaker who's going to find the best fit between your foot and the right shoe. I think I've seen enough that I know what's, what's going to work for him, uh, so I'm going to let him decide what feels best to him. But I'm going to try a couple different shoes on him right now that maybe not, as we would say, traditional. The first of those not-so-traditional shoes is the Hoka 1-1 Vanquish. So when you look at this next one, you're going to see a lot more midsole, but think of it as a lot less drop. Hoka's are known for their super-fat, three-finger-thick midsoles. The shoes are deceptively super-light, but they do look like elevator shoes. And Christopher, he's a bit dubious. It looks just like a really big shoe. It does. Um, hmm, okay. But let's try it on. All right. I also like the design. It looks like a cheetah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, cheetahs are fast. feels like, like, uh, we used to sort of round it. It feels like my feet are sitting in, like, little boats or yeah, something. Yeah, so let's, yeah. let's, let you, let's watch you run in this one again, too. It's like running on cushions. All right, what do you think? Uh, it's a lot softer on the front. Right, yeah. It feels like really, like I'm trying to figure out where the road is when I push down. These are really cushiony. The last shoe Christopher tries on is an Ultra Torin. Ultra is famous for its zero-drop shoes, which means the shoe is just as thick in the forefoot as it is in the heel. They also have a distinctly wide toe box. It's really roomy around your toes. These are really wide in the front. They're like, these almost feel like they're too big. I'll double check them when you stand on it. Okay. All right. All right, let's watch you run in these as well. They kind of look like clown shoes. 
Turns out, the Ultras, a shoe Christopher didn't even know about when he walked in the store, went out. I feel like these are actually my favorite shoes, although they look the silliest. Uh, they are comfy, they feel fast. Uh, it feels as much when I'm running like uh, they're just kind of getting out of my way and letting me run. These are, are shoes that I wouldn't have like walked up to the shelf and grabbed, partly because they're... Um, they have the least amount of red and black in them. Pro tip. When buying running shoes, it's not about the colors. But uh, also just because they look strange. But, um, yeah, they feel really comfy. I asked Chris if he had any advice for other runners making their first trip into a specialty running store. Tip number one, bring your old shoes with you. Because it's a good storyteller and just tells us how they, how they wore their shoes, whether it was correct or incorrect. It is kind of nice just to see the wear patterns and stuff from the shoes. Number two. If possible, go into the store in the afternoon or the evening. When your feet are swollen or maybe if your feet are a little bit more tired. Tip number three. Definitely bring the socks that you're going to run in as well uh, so we can do the fit like you're, like you're going to go ahead and run with them. And if your weight's changed, either through pregnancy or a weight loss or gain, it can change what you need in a shoe. And at the end of the visit, Christopher checks out with his new pair of blue shoes. All right. I have you sign here. Thanks again. Thank you. You're very welcome. So what did you learn from the process of going through this? Well, you know, I think basically uh, my two prevailing, uh, you know, criteria for finding a shoe before this were color and comfort, (laughs) with price also in there somewhere. Um, But, you know, all the shoes that that, uh, he showed me were around the same uh, weight, they were all very different shapes, uh, and they all felt very different on my feet, which, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've tried more than one shoe on that close to each other, so I just wouldn't have guessed that. All right, Christopher, now that you have a new pair of shoes, why don't we go break them in on the lunch run? All right, let's go. Coincidentally, Ultra actually is the presenting sponsor of the Runner's World Half and Festival here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. But just wanted to note that we had no influence whatsoever on the four shoes that were featured in this segment. It it actually happened just that way. But you can learn more about all four of those shoes at runnersworld.com slash audio. Okay, it's time for The Kick. Here are Sarah Lorge Butler and Kit Fox, who work together on the Newswire section of our website. Kit, I know you've been reading Shoe Dog, the book by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. What do you think of it? It's fascinating. You know, we think of Nike as this massive corporation with the swoosh everywhere, but this story is really about a ragtag team in the late 1960s, early 1970s who started this company. It wasn't even called Nike at the time. It was called Blue Ribbon Sports, and it actually almost failed a few times. But in addition to being a fantastic story about Phil Knight and kind of his philosophy and, and business practices, it's also a great read. It was ghostwritten by a writer named J.R. Moringer, who's known for his critically acclaimed memoir, The Tender Bar, as well as Andre Agassi's memoir, Open. So what were some of the most interesting parts of the book, did you think? Well, what a lot of people may not know is is that Phil Knight himself was a runner, actually a pretty good runner, too. He was the second best high school runner in Oregon, recruited hmm. by the University of Oregon. But, 
you know, the university was such a big deal with Bill Bowerman as the coach. He was kind of a middle to back of the pack runner on the team, ran the 800 in the mile. So he was the perfect person to test out Bill Bowerman's mad genius shoes. One of my favorites was he used cod at one point. And I'm not even sure how that would work, but... It, cod like the fish. Yes, like the fish. So fish skin shoes, which never, you know, went to stores. Maybe in the future, Nike will come out with some <laughs> codfish shoes. But um, anyway, there was a quote. I'm paraphrasing here, but one of my favorite quotes from that era was um, Phil Knight says that Bill Bowerman's shoes either made you float or they made you bleed. <laughs> That sounds great. And sneakers, running shoes are smelly enough as they are. So when you make them out of cod, that has to add an extra uh, yes. layer of odor. The natural <laughs> fish smell that comes after a long run. What else is in there? Yeah. And so one of the other interesting things kind of staying on the running theme is is that Phil Knight it seems like, um, you know, he admits in his book that running was really therapeutic for him. Oftentimes during these major business decisions that he had to make throughout his career, he'd go on these six-mile runs. He said he kept that up really consistently. And also a lot of the first employees that he had were runners or people that he knew in the running community. So he would go on runs with them and talk business and, you know, just chat about the growth of the company. That's pretty cool. I think a lot of us have that experience. It's kind of cool to know that he had it too, going on runs and solving problems or having creative ideas. Yeah, Sarah, that's even more reason for you to, you know, let me go on lunch runs. Of course, Kit. How much time do you need at lunch? I mean, two hours would be great. (laughs) (laughs) I know a lot of people are interested to know more about Steve Prefontaine because he's so tied up in the legend of Nike. What did you learn about him? One of the interesting things that I found out is is that, you know, at this time, all these elite athletes were con- considered amateur, so they couldn't get any endorsements or anything like that. So Prefontaine was really, you know, really pretty broke. He lived in a trailer. He had to tend bar in Eugene. So Nike hired him, um, and they gave him a salary of $5,000 a year, and his title was something like National Public Affairs officer and he drove around in a VW bus and and basically preached the brand to you know at high schools and colleges all across the country. I'm reading the Runner's World excerpt and it's just a small part of the excerpt but he does mention how everybody is starstruck by Prefontaine even him Phil Knight. Yeah, Phil Knight's the guy who signed Kobe and Jordan and Tiger Woods but when they first signed Prefontaine and Pre would come into the office, Phil Knight was, was tongue-tied and kind of felt intimidated by Pre because that's how big a deal he was at the time. So reading all this about Prefontaine reminds me that this is still pretty relevant today. You know, him being an amateur athlete, not being able to get endorsements. Um, you know, elite runners are still having that challenge today. And I know there's been some recent news. Sarah, what can you tell us? Yeah, Nick Simmons is an 800-meter national champion, and he's very concerned with athletes' rights and athletes' ability to make money by displaying more than one logo on their uniform or on their body. So that's kind of like NASCAR drivers have, you know, 20 different company logos on their cars. Right, because... When you think about it, runners don't have huge base salaries like somebody does playing in the NFL or playing in the NBA. So really, they have a shoe sponsor and maybe a couple of other sponsors, and that's it. And if you can only display one logo and the national governing body is very specific about the logos you can display and how big they can be, it really limits your earnings potential. So 
Nick Simmons has been doing a variety of things to call attention to this. And recently, he just ended an eBay auction for space on his arm. I think that's his, his deltoid, to be specific. <laughs> okay, Sarah, so how much is Nick Simmons's deltoid actually worth? He made $21,800 on. on the eBay auction. And if it sounds familiar, it's because he did the same thing four years ago on eBay. Same space, same arm. That time he made only $11,100. So actually, while the rest of us are depreciating, Nick Simmons is worth more and more every year. So who's the person that's paying $21,000? The auction was won by John Ledger, who's the CEO of T-Mobile, and who's quite a serious runner himself. He actually has several sub-three-hour marathon finishes to his credit, and he follows elite running and racing really closely. He often spontaneously gives bonuses to elite athletes. He definitely knows his stuff. So how's this all going to work? Like, where are people going to see this tattoo? And is it is it temporary? Is it going to be permanent? Yeah, it's going to be a temporary tattoo. And Ledger gets to decide what's on it. But the way things stand right now, the way the rules are right now, is that Simmons is going to have to cover it up during national and international competitions. So this summer... The Olympic trials are from July 1st to the 10th, and he'll be wearing it, but it'll have a patch over it. And then should he make the Olympic team, he'll have to cover it up for that as well. So while all these elite athletes are concerned about how they're making money, there's a non-elite who is actually handing out money at marathons. What's this all about, Sarah? That's right. Her name is Cindy Petrovitz, and she's a high school art teacher from Pleasant Valley, New York. She was so happy to be running in the Boston Marathon. She had tried to qualify five times and finally qualified on her sixth time and signed up for the marathon. And she just wanted to find a way to thank fans and supporters along the way. So being an art teacher, she designed these really beautiful little handmade cards. And in each one, she tucked a $20 bill and she wrote pay it forward, and she wrote her bib number on it. So how many of these did she make? Well, her initial idea was to make 26 of them, but then she realized that that was going to be a little bit cumbersome to carry 26 cards, and it was also going to get really expensive. So she made five, and she handed out most of them along the course and saved one for the person who gave her her medal. So how did we even find out about this random act of kindness? That's kind of funny. The person who was handing out medals, Cindy gave her the card, and they posed for a picture together. And the woman took the card and put it in her pocket and didn't even look at it until several hours later. And then she realized what had happened and what the message was inside, and she decided to contact us and let Runner's World know about it. But I think it's important to point out Cindy wasn't doing this for the publicity. She was pretty surprised when our reporter, Allison Wade, got in touch with her. Yeah, I just love this story. It really just shows the spirit of running and also how important it is for us to thank our volunteers out there. You know, you don't have to pay them $20, but just just a thank you is probably good enough. Yeah, so we posted the story on Runner's World's Facebook page, and our readers really responded to this, and they shared their ideas for how they're going to say thank you at their next race. Well, that will wrap it up for this week's kick. Thank you, Sarah, so much for coming down and helping out. Thank you, Kit. 
It's what I've learned. The road can be rough, the tides can turn. But if you work to know yourself, don't have to worry about nothing else. So I run. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you are so inclined, we'd be so grateful if you went to iTunes to give us a review and a rating. We are constantly trying to make the show better and would love to hear any feedback. This show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek with editing help from Rachel Swaby. The music you're hearing now and that you heard at the top of the show was written and performed by Thunderhoof. We hope you'll join us next week when executive editor Tish Hamilton and I talk about my recent trip to China and what the running life is like there. Also, our other podcast, Human Race, just went live. Hosted by Rachel Swaby, each episode tells one story in immersive detail. It's really great, and we hope you'll check it out. Always keep striving, trying to do your best. So I